Welcome to The Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Give us a call, 208-991-4783, and become one of our friends on Twitter at Radio Detectives. Uh, Well, today's episode is brought to you by the financial support of our listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, And uh, you can support the program at support.greatdetectives.net. Well, we're going to bring you an episode that will be very familiar to long-time listeners of the program. It's the Adventure of the Speckled Band. Uh, The Speckled Band has actually been done by every uh, one of the major Holmeses, you know, anyone where we played a large number of episodes. There were, you know, a couple ones. There was Ben Wright, Orson Welles, uh, and one other person, um, uh, Louise Hector, I believe, who, uh, from the 1930s, where we don't have that. But the four major ones we have, uh, we played the first time we played the Speckled Band, was in 2010 in June with uh, Basil Rathbone. And that was way back on episode uh, one, uh, 164. Then the next time we played, it was August 2011 with Tom Conway in episode 479. And then the last time we played, it was uh, actually only about... Uh, uh, only about eight months ago in September 2012, episode 754. So if you want a quick way to get a comparison of the Holmeses, uh, you can go ahead and do the, uh, just search Speckled Band at greatdetectives.net. Uh, well, we're going to get into today's episode. Uh, I do want to encourage you to be sure and stay around after today's episode because I have an extra special uh, bonus uh, old-time radio treat I think you'll enjoy. But here now is the Speckled Band. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The original and immortal stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle dramatized anew with Sir Ralph Richardson as Dr. Watson and Sir John Gielgud in the role of Sherlock Holmes. My name is John H. Watson, and by profession, I am a doctor of medicine. In the spring of 1883, Sherlock Holmes and I took up our residence at 221B Baker Street, London. I shall never forget that April morning when I ushered in Miss Helen Stoner into our sitting room. She was a most attractive young lady, dressed in black, was heavily veiled, 
and appeared much distressed. It's not the cold which makes me shiver, Mr. Holmes. It's fear. Terror. I can stand this strain no longer. I shall go mad if it continues. I've no one to turn to. Even my fiancé believes it's only my imagination. You mustn't fear. We'll soon set matters to rights, I've no doubt. My name is Helen Stoner, and I'm living with my stepfather, who was the last survivor of one of the oldest families in England, the Roylock of Stoke Moran on the western border of Surrey. The name is familiar to me, madam. The family used to be very rich. Now there's nothing left save a few acres and an old house crushed under a heavy mortgage. Eight years ago, my mother died. Was your mother a wealthy woman? She had a fortune of some thousand pounds a year, which she bequeathed to Dr. Roylott entirely so long as we resided with him, with the provision that a certain annual sum should be allowed to both Julia and myself if either of us should marry. Uh-huh. Tell me, did Dr. Roylott uh, continue to practice after your return to England? No, not after the death of my mother. He took my sister and me to live with him at Stoke Moran, and for a time we were quite happy together. A terrible change began to come over our stepfather. He shut himself up and only came out to indulge in violent quarrels with his neighbors. He's ended by becoming dreadfully feared in the village. He has no friends at all but the wandering bands of gypsies that he allows to camp in his grounds. He's a collector of strange animals. He has an Indian cheetah and a baboon which wander freely over the estate and are feared by the villagers almost as much as he is. No servant would stay with us. We had to do all the work of the house. You could imagine what it was like for my sister and me. And when she died, though she was only 30, Julia's hair had begun to turn white, even as mine has. Your sister died? Just two years ago. Soon after, she'd become engaged to be married. Only a fortnight before the wedding, she died in terrible circumstances. Uh, did your stepfather offer any objection to her marriage? No, he didn't appear to. The circumstances of your sister's death. Please be precise as to detail. It's easy to be so, for every event of that dreadful time is seared into my memory. As I said, the manor house is very old, and only one wing is now in use. The bedrooms in this wing are on the ground floor. First my stepfather's, then my sister's, and then mine. There's no communication between them, but they open onto the same corridor and look out onto the same lawn. That night... Dr. Roylott, my stepfather, had gone to his room early, but was not yet asleep, for my sister was troubled by the strong smell of his Indian cigar. She left her room and came into mine, where she sat chatting about her coming wedding. Well, Helen, I'll be getting back to bed. He must be asleep by now. By the way, have you ever heard a strange whistle in the dead of night? A whistle? No, why? For the last few nights. About three in the morning... I've been wakened by a low, clear whistle. I haven't heard it, but then I sleep more heavily than you do. Well, it's of no consequence. Good night. I couldn't sleep that night. I'd locked my door after Julia left and heard her lock hers, too. We always locked our doors for fear of the cheetah and the baboon that were let out every night in the grounds. I remember it was a wild night. The wind was howling outside and the rain beating against the windows. I had a terrible premonition of evil. And suddenly, through the storm... I knew it was my sister who had screamed. I sprang from my bed, wrapped a shawl around me, and rushed into the corridor. As I opened my door, I heard a distant whistle. A whistle? And 
a clanging sound as if a mass of metal had fallen somewhere. As I ran towards it, my sister's door was unlocked and slowly swung open. By the light of a lamp, I saw her standing there, her face blanched with terror, her hands groping for help, her whole figure swaying to and fro. Her knees gave way and she fell to the ground. She only screamed the one thing before she died in my arms. It seems that Julia Stoner's death was carefully investigated by the local coroner. That Dr. Roylott's conduct had been notorious in the county and foul play was suspected. But no satisfactory explanation of the tragedy was ever found. The doctor had been asleep in his room. The scream had wakened him. Julia's room had been locked on the inside. The windows heavily shuttered. The chimney was barred by iron staples. It was certain that Julia Stoner had been quite alone when she had met her end. There was nothing to indicate how she had met it. There were no marks of violence on the body, and the doctors could find no evidence of poison. It's my belief that she died of sheer terror and nervous shock. Though what it was to frighten her, I cannot imagine. Uh, were there any gypsies camping in the plantation at the time? Yes, there are nearly always somewhere. And what did you gather from her illusion... The speckled band. Oh, sometimes I've thought it was merely delirium. Sometimes I've wondered if it might have referred to some band of people. Perhaps those very gypsies in the plantation with their spotted handkerchiefs on their heads. These are very deep waters, Miss Stoner. Please go on. Two years have passed since then. And until lately, my life has been lonelier than ever. A month ago, however, I became engaged to be married to a Mr. Armitage, a neighbor of ours and a very dear friend. I feared my stepfather might offer objections, but he's made no difficulties, and we are to be married later this spring. Yes? Two days ago, some repairs were started in the West Wing, so that I've had to move out of my own room into the room next door, the room in which my sister died. Last night, I lay awake thinking of her terrible fate. I suddenly heard in the silence of the night that same low whistle. Though her room was locked, and there appeared to be nothing wrong when she sprang out of bed and lit her lamp, Helen Stoner had been too terrified to go back to bed. As soon as it was light, she had caught an early morning train to London and had come straight round to ask the advice of Sherlock Holmes. You have done very wisely. Are you sure you told me everything? Yes, everything. I think you are still shielding your stepfather, Miss Stoner. Isn't that the mark of his grip there on your wrist? He's a hard man. Perhaps he hardly knows his own strength. Well, this is a very deep business. And from what you've told me, there may not be a moment to lose. If we were to come down to Stoke Moran today, would it be possible to see over the bedrooms without the knowledge of your stepfather? I think so. He told me last night he was coming to London for the day. There should be no one to disturb him. Excellent. Then we shall both come. What are you going to do yourself? I have one or two things to attend to in town, but I shall be home shortly after noon. Then you may expect us early this afternoon, Miss Stoner. Goodbye for the present. We discussed many possible theories after Miss Stoner had left. We were in the midst of our deliberations when we received another visitor. Which of you is Holmes? My name, sir, but you have the advantage of it. 
I'm Dr. Grimesby Royalip, Stone Moran. My stepdaughter's been here. What has she been saying to you? It is a little cold for the time of the year. What has she been saying to you? But I've heard that the crocuses promise very well. Ah, you'll put me off, do you? I know Miss Stoner has been to see you. But don't you dare meddle in my affairs. I'm a dangerous man to fall foul of. See that you keep yourself out of my grip. Oh, like this poker. I'll bend it. An amiable person. Bending our poker almost double, you observe. I'm not quite so bulky, but if he'd remained, I might have shown him that my grip was not much more feeble than his own. There. I think that's just about straight again. <laughs> you know, my dear Watson, this little incident gives a new zest to our investigations. We shall certainly see what we can find at Stoke Moran this afternoon. Good afternoon, Miss Stoner. You see that we've been as good as our word. I've been waiting so eagerly for you. Now, we must make the best use of our time, so kindly take us at once to the rooms we have to examine. The building was of grey, niching, blotched stone with a high central portion and two curving wings, like the claws of a crab thrown out on each side. The central block and the east wing were empty and in poor repair. Blinds to the windows and blue smoke curling up from the chimneys showed that part of the west wing in which the family resided. Some scaffolding had been erected against the end wall, and the stonework had been broken into, but there were no workmen about. Holmes examined the outsides of the three-bedroom windows with the closest attention. This, I take it, belongs to the room in which you used to sleep. The center one is your sister's room, and the one next to the main building is Dr. Roylott's. Yes, but I'm sleeping in the middle one, of course. Pending the alterations, as I understand. By the way, there doesn't seem to be any pressing need for repairs to that end wall. There were none. I believe that it was an excuse to move me from my own room into my sister's. Ah, that is suggestive. Well, these windows and shutters are quite firm. No one could possibly get in this way if they were firmly bolted on the inside. We shall have to see if the rooms themselves throw any light on this matter. A small side door led into the whitewashed corridor from which the three bedrooms opened. Holmes passed at once into the room in which Helen Stoner was now sleeping, the middle one of the three, the bedroom in which her sister had met her death. It was a homely little room, plainly furnished. Holmes' eyes traveled round and round, up and down, taking in every detail. What does that bell communicate with? The housekeeper's room. It looks newer than the other things. Yes, it was put in a couple of years ago, just before my sister's death. I can't think why. She certainly never used it. Indeed. It's such a nice long bell pull. Very convenient, I should have thought. The tassel hangs down to the very pillow. Let me see. Why, it's a dummy. Won't it ring? No, it's not even attached to a wire. You can see. It's fastened to a hook up there. Just above the little opening of the ventilator. How very absurd. I never noticed it before. Very strange. And what fool of a builder would open the ventilator into the next room when he might have made it through the outer wall into the fresh air? Oh, that's also quite modern. It was done about the same time as the bell rope. There were several little changes carried out about that time. Shortly before your sister's death? Why, yes. He moved into the bedroom next door, the room of Dr. Roylott. It was larger than his stepdaughter's, but just as plainly furnished. A camp bed, an armchair, a plain wooden chair against the wall, a round table and a large iron safe 
were the principal things which met the eye. Once again, Holmes examined them all with the keenest interest. In one corner of the bed, he found a small dog lash, knotted so as to make a loop of the whip cord. Oh, this is interesting. What do you make of that, Watson? Hey, it's a common enough lash. I don't see why it should be tied into a loop. Mm, that's not quite so common, is it? Miss Stoner, what does your stepfather keep in the safe here? His business papers. Oh, you've seen inside it then? Only once, some years ago. It was full of papers then. There wasn't a cat in it by any chance? No. What a strange idea. Well, then why the saucer of milk standing on the top of it? No, we, we don't keep a cat. But as I told you, there's a cheetah and a baboon. Ah, yes, of course. Well, a cheetah is just a big cat. And yet a saucer of milk doesn't go very far to satisfy it, I dare say. Uh, now, just one more point. Let me examine this wooden chair. Hmm, very interesting. And now, Miss Stoner, I want you to listen carefully and follow my advice in every respect. I assure you that I'm in your hands, Mr. Holmes. Your life may depend on it. The matter is too serious for any hesitation. In the first place, then, Dr. Watson and I must spend the night here, in your room. But... Ah, uh, but dash it all, Holmes. No, no, let me explain, my dear Watson. You, Miss Stoner, must retire to your room on pretense of a headache. When your stepfather comes back. When you hear him retire for the night into this next door room, you must open the shutters of your window, undo the hasp, put your lamp there as a signal to us. We shall see it from over there in the village. Then go back into your old room, despite the repairs that will serve you perfectly well for one night. Oh, yes, of course. So we shall spend the night in the middle room, and then we shall be able to investigate the cause of this noise which has so disturbed you. Sherlock Holmes and I had no difficulty in engaging rooms at the village inn from which we could command a view of the inhabited wing of Stoke Moran Manor House. At dusk, we saw Dr. Grimesby Roylet drive past, lashing his horse. The trap turned into the manor drive. In a few moments, we saw a sudden light spring up among the trees as the lamp was lit in one of the sitting rooms. You know, Watson, I have some scruples about taking you tonight. There's a distinct element of danger. Can I be of assistance? Your presence might be invaluable. Then I'll certainly come. But you speak of danger. You obviously see more in these rooms than was visible to me. No, but I fancy I may have deduced a little more. I imagine that you saw all I did. I saw nothing remarkable save the bell rope. But what purpose... You saw the ventilator, too. Yes. There's nothing very unusual about that. There is at least a curious coincidence in dates. A ventilator is made, a cord is hung, and a lady who sleeps in the bed below dies. Does that not strike you? I can't as yet see any connection. Did you observe anything very peculiar about the bed? No. It was clamped to the floor, so that it must always be in the same position relative to the ventilator and the bell rope. Holmes, I seem to see dimly what you're driving at. We're only just in time to prevent some subtle and horrible crime. Yes, Watson, I think we shall have horrors enough before the night is over. About nine o'clock, the light among the trees was extinguished, and all was dark in the manor house. Two hours passed slowly away, and then, suddenly, a single bright light shone out from the darkness of the west wind. That's our signal. It comes from the middle window. Come on! There was little difficulty in entering the grounds through a hole in the park wall. We crossed the lawn, and we came to the open window. 
When out of a clump of laurel bushes there darted what seemed to be a hideous and distorted child, which threw itself on the grass with writhing limbs and then ran swiftly into the darkness. I haven't... Did you, did you see that, Holmes? Yes, a nice household, that of the baboon. Quick, quick, in through the windows before they're visited by the cheetah. He silently climbed inside, closing the shutters and moving the lamp onto the table. Holmes cast his eyes round the room. All was as we had seen it that afternoon. We must sit without a light. You can see it through the ventilator. Yes. Don't fall asleep. Not very light may depend upon it. Have your pistol ready in case we should need it. I took out my revolver and I laid it on the corner of the table. Holmes had brought a long, thin cane with him, which he laid on the bed beside him. Next to it, he placed a box of matches and a candle. Then he turned out the lamp, and we were left in utter darkness. How shall I ever forget that dreadful vigil? From outside came the occasional cry of a bird of the night, and once at our very window, a long-drawn cat-like whine, which told us that the cheetah was indeed at liberty. Twelve o'clock struck. One o'clock, two o'clock, three. And still we sat there, waiting silently for whatever might befall. Suddenly, there was a momentary gleam of light from the ventilator, which vanished immediately. Then, the smell of burning oil and heated metal. Someone in the next room lit a dark lantern. I heard a gentle sound of movement. Then, for half an hour, there was silence again. All at once, I heard another sound. A very gentle, soothing sound, like that of a small jet of steam escaping from a kettle. You see it, Watson? You see it? Striking a match, Holmes leapt from the bed and was lashing furiously with his cane at the bell pull. As the match flared, I heard a low, clear second whistle. Within the gloom, I could still not see what Holmes was attacking so frantically. All I could see was the horror and the loathing on his pale, gaunt face. <coughs> that scream! It was horrible! What can it mean? It means, Watson, that it's all over. Take your pistol and come with me into Dr. Roylott's room. In Dr. Roylott's room, it was a strange and terrible sight that met our eyes. On the table stood a dark lantern with the shutter half open, throwing a brilliant beam of light upon the iron safe, the door of which was ajar. Beside this table sat Dr. Grimesby Roylott, clad in a long dressing gown. His chin was cocked upwards and his eyes were fixed in a dreadful, rigid stare at the corner of the ceiling. About his brow he had a peculiar yellow band with brownish speckles which seemed to be bound tightly round his head. A band, Watson. A speckled band. The speckled band round the head of the dead man was a snake. The deadliest snake in India. An adder. A swamp adder. And Dr. Grimesby Roylett had died ten seconds after that snake had bitten him. Yes, violence does in truth recoil upon the violent. And the schemer falls into the pit which he digs for another. Let us thrust this creature back into its bed. As he spoke, Holmes drew the dog whip swiftly from the dead man's lap, and throwing the knotted loop round the reptile's neck, he drew it from its horrid perch and threw it into the iron safe. And now, my dear fellow, we can remove Miss Stoner to some place of shelter 
and let the county police know what has happened. Back in our rooms at Baker Street that evening, Holmes lit his pipe and filled in a few of the gaps. I have come to an entirely erroneous conclusion which shows, my dear Watson, how dangerous it always is to reason from insufficient data. The presence of the gypsies and the use of the word band, that poor girl Julia obviously had glimpsed the snake as she struck a match, well, they were sufficient to put me on an entirely wrong scent. I only corrected my mistake when I saw how impossible it was to enter the room, either by the door or the window. The bell rope, the ventilator, and the clamped bed then gave rise to the suspicion that the rope was there as a bridge for something passing through the hole and coming down to the bed. The idea of a snake instantly occurred to me, for, as we knew already, the doctor had his own supply of strange pets from India. And the whistle? And the clang? The whistle was the doctor's signal to recall the snake before the morning light could reveal it to the victim. After all, once it had come down the bell rope, it might or might not have bitten the victim. But sooner or later, the doctor knew that it would. I had come to these conclusions before I entered his room. You seem to deduce something from the wooden chair. Of course. He had to stand on that to reach the ventilator. The saucer of milk, the loop of whipcord, the iron safe were enough to dispel any doubts that might have remained. Huh. Metallic clang, I suppose, was the doctor shutting the snake in the safe again. Exactly, and not the window shutter being replaced, as at first I had supposed. The blows of my cane, of course, drove the brute back through the ventilator and roused its temper. It was ready to bite the first person it saw. So, in a way, I must be responsible for Dr. Roylott's death. But I cannot say that it's likely to weigh very heavily on my conscience. Draw up your chair to the fire, my dear fellow, and be so good as to hand me my violin. The only problem we have to solve now, my dear Watson, is how to while away these rather chilly April evenings. Welcome back. Well, overall, a pretty uh, solid performance. I think they did a great job with the um, uh, sound effects and the acting, really setting the kind of the creepiness of the scene. And it can be kind of hard since this particular story really has been done a ton on uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but they, they managed, uh, they managed to do a good job, even though I, I've heard, uh, quite a few. I really, uh, appreciated this, um, uh, appreciated this, uh, performance. All right. Well, now we do turn to listener comments and feedback. And we received a lot of positive feedback on the McCoy, our special for our 950th episode. Uh, and, uh, Joan uh, comments, it is too bad this was not picked up as a series with Howard Duff. I liked him and his acting. This was a good show. Thank you for giving us a chance to hear it. Sean said, listen, last night would have been a great series. And Beverly says, I love Howard Duff. Can't wait for Sam Spade. Thanks so much. Uh, also, we have this uh, comment from Jolene. 
Uh, thanks so much for your podcast. I love them all. I've started listening again from the beginning on the iPad app. I think Sherlock Holmes will always be my favorite, but I love uh, Nero uh, too. Well, thanks, Jolene. And uh, it's actually somewhat surprising. Usually, most times when I average out the um, total number of uh, subscriptions, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Nero Wolf are one, two, and that's you know kind of amazing since. Uh, Nero Wolf, uh, I believe we finished his uh, way back in season two, two years ago, uh, but continues to have a lot of people uh, listen to and enjoy the program. All right, well, folks, I promised you a bit of bonus audio at the beginning of the program, and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, I listen to a lot of old-time radio other than just the detective shows, which can come in handy every now and again. I came across this episode of... Strange as it seems, which purports to tell the story of the real Sherlock Holmes. Well, uh, let's just go ahead and take a listen here now from episode 38 of Strange as it Seems in 1935, the original Sherlock Holmes. The original Sherlock Holmes. Edinburgh, Scotland, around 1900. There are many patients in the waiting room of Dr. Joseph Bell. In the infirmary connected with his office, Dr. Bell has a corps of assistants. Among them, a young medical student named Arthur Conan Doyle. Dr. Bell sits in his office. The door opens. Young Conan Doyle enters with a middle-aged patient. Dr. Bell. This is Sandy McNabb. Uh, now, uh, what's the trouble with you, McNabb? I have his case history here, if you want it, Dr. Bell. Uh, I didn't think I needed Doyle. Now, let me see, McNabb. You served in the army, didn't you? Aye, sir. Mm. Uh, just uh, recently discharged? Aye, but three months, sir. Uh, uh, a healing regiment. Non-commissioned officer, weren't you? Aye. Uh. You were, uh, you were stationed at Barbados in the West Indies. Aye, it was there I first got sick. Uh, Mr. McNabb, go through this door down the hall. That's the infirmary. The uh, nurse will get you ready for an examination. Very good, Doctor. Dr. Bell, tell me how you knew all that on first sight. You always know these case histories without looking at the records. Uh, elementary, my dear Doyle, Elementary. If you use ordinary observation. Is that so, sir? Uh, First of all, uh, he was respectful. But uh, didn't remove his hat when he came into the office. Uh, They don't remove their hats in the army, even to a superior officer. Oh? However, if he'd been out of the army long, he'd have learned civilian ways. Well, that's right, sir. Uh, then he had an air of authority, even though quiet, and he's certainly a Scot. Therefore, he, he probably belonged to a healing regiment. Yes, sir, that's all correct. Uh, last of all, the, the poor fellow was suffering from elephantiasis. That is not an English disease, but is common in the West Indies. There are several Scotch regiments stationed in the Barbados. Now, see how simple it all is. 
Dr. Bell, you'd make a wonderful detective. Mm. <laughs> Why don't you write a book about me, Doyle? You're always making up stories. You know, sir, that thought has often occurred to me. Well, then do it, and uh, I'll edit your manuscripts. I'll begin the story tonight, Dr. Bell. Mm. Well, what will you call me? I don't know. I thought perhaps I'd call you Holmes. Holmes? Holmes, eh? Well, uh, what's my first name? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I knew someone named Sherlock once. It's an odd name. Sherlock Holmes. Well, it, it, it's a foolish enough name for a detective story. <laughs> now, mind you, young man, don't make me sentimental or scotch or a doctor. No, sir. Just Sherlock Holmes, detective. <laughs> Strange as it seems, Dr. Joseph Bell of Edinburgh was the original Sherlock Holmes. He was very much interested in Conan Doyle's stories of the great detective and often gave him suggestions. Dr. Bell died in 1911. Welcome back. Well, I enjoyed that piece. Very quaint and charming. Um, if there are any inaccuracies, I would love so much to hear from any listeners who are experts. Uh, but that will actually do it for today. Uh, I appreciate everyone listening in. I do need to let you know, oh, before we go, we actually only have three more weeks of uh, Sherlock Holmes left. And then we're going to embark on a month of mystery specials before we get to Nick Carter. Um, the first one I'll tell you about, I'm saving it a surprise, but I'll let you know what it is the week uh, before, uh, is related to Arthur Conan Doyle. And then uh, what we have coming up in uh, after three related mystery specials, we'll be doing the series Nick Carter. Uh, so I hope you'll be listening. Uh, in the meanwhile, I'll send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and uh, become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash Radio Detectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.